All right, thank you very much, Chantel. And am I good? You can hear me okay? Okay, thanks. Um, if you would please pray with me. Um, God, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Um, okay, so my name is Bob Mueller, and I'm a guest preacher, so if you are here and you're not a regular, please come back when the A-team is here. Um, that would be really good. Um, so a little bit about my background for those who don't know me, because uh, I haven't preached here in a while. I teach 11th grade Bible and some other classes at Trinity Academy, and um, I w I'm not really a typical teacher. I used to be a lawyer, and I left that in 2008 to go back to school and to go into teaching. And I got a master's degree in philosophy of religion and theology at Trinity University in Illinois. And I'm married to Amy. We have one son, Lucas, who's a student at Butler Community College. And we've been at Wheatland for about five or six years now. And um, we just, we really like it here. We really appreciate Paul's preaching and the friendliness and just everything about this place. Um, uh, just really proud to be a member here and I'm honored to be able to preach. I just, I think this is a great church. And um, I appreciate changing the order of the reading so that Exodus came, uh, because that's what I'll be preaching on. So if we could go to the first slide. Um, so the story is one that hopefully everybody knows, if not from reading Exodus, then at least from the Cecil B. DeMille movie and Charlton Heston. But um, God, what I want to focus on in this passage is the burning bush and Moses' experience of God on that mountain and the whole concept of religious experience. And so I actually, um, I'm not going to promise something I can't deliver. I actually have pictures of the burning bush. Uh, and this is real. This is not like some gimmick. So if you could go to the, the very next slide. So... Uh, one back. So I was in the Holy Land when I was in seminary. I had a class where we actually studied in Israel and Egypt, and we went to what is believed to be the, the scene of the passage that Chantel read in Mount Sinai. And the, the photograph here is St. Catherine's Monastery, which is at the base of Mount Sinai. And I'll, I just want to say one thing about going to the Holy Land if you've never been there. And this is gonna sound weird, but it's a little bit kitschy. Like, it's a little bit like if you've ever been to Mount Vernon in uh, Northern Virginia, and every other place you go to, there's a sign saying George Washington slept here, except it's like Jesus slept here, or John the Baptist slept here. It's a little weird. Um, and Mount Sinai, in some ways, was no different than that. So if you could go to the next slide, please. So this is me getting ready to go up, and for a number of reasons, we went up on camels, so this was my camel, and it was, um, part, at times it was really seemed dangerous. I guess a lot of people do it, and I don't know if they've lost anyone, but. Um, so anyway, as promised, uh, get ready for it. The next slide is the burning bush. If you go to Mount Sinai, they will, I believe it's in the little grotto area where St. Catherine's Monastery is, there is a bush that they, they say is the burning bush. And, um, so it's, it's kind of up on a ledge, 
and there's a little uh, concrete area under it and on the area is this sign that's on the next slide. Um, yeah. Uh, so I looked up ironic in the dictionary and it said, see irony. I mean, I, um, uh, yeah, so it's, there honestly is a no smoking sign right by the burning bush. Um, so I am preaching on this passage because I really wanted to talk about religious experience. It's, it's a topic that's near and dear to me. It's something I studied at seminary. And I think this passage is one of the greatest examples in the Bible of a religious experience. And religious experiences are a thing. I guess that's part of what I wanted to convey today, that different people throughout history have claimed to have had experiences of God or other experiences of the supernatural. This is something that's been studied not only by theologians and philosophers, but by scientists, by medical doctors, um, psychiatrists. A lot of people have studied this phenomenon. And the philosopher William James wrote a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And in it, he talks about the different ways that people claim to have experienced God or experienced the supernatural. And he kind of focuses on the effect that these experiences have on people, on their lives, on their beliefs. And he's a little bit dismissive, I thought, of um, whether or not such experiences are really legitimate, whether or not they really happened. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't, I don't know about you, I think most of us care deeply about whether such experiences really happened. Um, the idea of if you have an experience uh, uh, of something that really is as you perceive it, the word that's sometimes used for that is veridical we'd say that you had a veridical experience. If you think you experienced God and you really truly did, we call that a veridical experience. I think most of us are really, really interested in whether these experiences are veridical or not. It's not that it seems to Moses that he had an encounter with God on that mountain. It's, it's that he really did. Um, it, we really hope that there was a burning bush and that the burning bush couldn't be taken out by a stray cigarette butt, um, that it really is legitimate. Um, and so I want to kind of switch gears and talk about a more, that, that experience obviously is in the Bible. It happened a long time ago in a place very far away. Um, so I want to talk about another uh, more recent story that's maybe a little closer to home. So in 2001, there was a man named Kevin who was driving with his young son Alex in an area in rural Ohio. And as they were coming up to a dangerous intersection, Kevin pulled out his cell phone to answer a call and they had a bad accident. Uh, Kevin was okay, he was thrown from the car, but his son Alex was badly injured, uh, went into a coma and he eventually came out of it. And when Alex came out of the coma, he talked about having had a, an amazing experience in which he saw angels and Jesus and other amazing things. And his dad, Kevin, started to write down what Alex recounted, and they eventually turned it into a book called The Boy Who Came From Heaven, or, or sorry, The Boy Who Came Back From Heaven, a true story. And it recounted this out-of-body experience where Alex was taken up to heaven and saw these amazing things. And it was, the book sold over a million copies. It was a subject of a television documentary. Um, there's only one problem with it. The boy, uh, Alex, later claimed that he made it all up. He said he, he made it up to get attention and that his dad had embellished a few things 
and it got a lot of publicity for all the wrong reasons. And if you could go to the next slide, thank you. Um, so the name of the book is The Boy Came Back from Heaven, and unfortunately, uh, the father and son, their last name was Malarkey, which kind of gave the story even more uh, fame. Um, and if the word malarkey, if, if you're uh, young enough not to know what that means, that's a good thing, but it kind of means like baloney, like something, a story that's really, really not true. And if you think you've heard it before, when Joe Biden went on his bus tour, he called it the no malarkey tour. So if you think you've heard, that's where you heard the word. Um, this is the fear I think that Christians have with putting too much stock into stories about these kinds of dramatic religious experiences. That sometimes they turn out to be frauds and we look silly for having believed in them and for having them be such a major part of our faith. Um, so in this area, maybe it's good to have some skepticism. A lot of people who tell these stories, some of them may be lying, some of them may be mentally unstable. Um, and so maybe it's good to have some skepticism. And the quote that I have on the slide is from the philosopher Thomas Hobbes. And I think his quote captures this well. He says, if someone says God spoke to me, I will say it seems to you that God spoke to you. But on the other hand, I guess we shouldn't be too skeptical about God's ongoing activities in the world. And Hobbes was a materialist. And a materialist is somebody who basically believes that matter is all that there is. And so there is no God. And it was, it was difficult for Thomas Hobbes because he lived at a time and a place when it was, uh, it was a little bit dicey to be an, uh, an avowed atheist. So he, he sometimes kept his atheism under wraps. But if you read his, what he wrote, it's pretty clear he was an atheist. But uh, materialism is actually more than atheism. It's not just saying God doesn't exist. It's saying that there is nothing at all spiritual, that matter and the movements of matter, the effects of the movements of matter are really all there is. And if you will, it's like atheism on steroids. Um, it's, you're really, really skeptical. And I have to say, if I wasn't a Christian, as much as I hate to admit this, I think I'd probably be a materialist. Um, I don't know about you, when my faith batteries get low, um, I think this is what I slip into. It's just sometimes when I look around and life gets me down, it's really hard to believe there's anything else out there. Um, and I was, I was talking to Paul about this before um, today, and Paul brought up the, the fact that deism is probably a temptation for a lot of people as well. And deism is the idea that there is a God and he created the universe, but he just kind of leaves it alone, like the, the clockmaker who makes a clock and winds it up and puts it on the shelf and never touches it again. And I think he's right. I think that is a trap that's easy to fall into as well. And as I thought about this sermon and made notes, it occurred to me that deism and materialism are really similar, that even though they have vastly different ideas of how the universe came to get here, they both really have the same view of how it operates and that there's nothing supernatural in our lived experiences. And so I think deism is, is an easy trap to fall into sometimes too. And part of the reason I wanted to address this topic is I think this is something that might be especially easy for Wheatlanders to fall into. A lot of us come from evangelical backgrounds and evangelical churches certainly tend to downplay the idea of religious experience. Some churches 
even take the position that religious, real supernatural religious experiences just can't happen today. And so also we all live in this scientifically advanced and pretty skeptical age. And so we're likely to be naturally skeptical of stories like this, especially when life has beaten you down and you just, you're finding it hard anyway to believe that there's anything else out there. And so I think that understanding this topic of religious experience is maybe a way to help counteract that tendency towards skepticism. And so I wanted to use this time to just throw out a few things for your consideration in this area. And so also in accordance with Wheatland tradition, uh, that's the end of my intro, now I'm ready to start. Um, so if, uh, if you could go to the next slide, please. So um, Alex and Kevin Malarkey claimed that Alex had a near-death experience and, uh, or sometimes called, it's abbreviated as an NDE. And this is a thing, I mean, it's probably, in terms of really dramatic, spectacular religious experiences, it's probably one of the most prevalent. And um, so some of the information I'm gonna be presenting on this actually comes from a great article in, of all places, The Atlantic Magazine. Uh, it was a cover story several years ago. And if you've read The Atlantic, you know it's not exactly a Christian or a spiritual publication. And in fact, the author of this article was an avowed materialist who was obviously very skeptical of the claims. Um, NDEs have been recorded since ancient times. The oldest known medical report of a near-death experience was written by an 18th century French military doctor. And uh, based on a 2005 survey of world literature, 95% of world cultures uh, are known to have made some mention of near-death experiences. And a number of recent studies have looked at the percentage of people who report having had these experiences. And in nine different studies from four different countries, it showed that at least 17% of critically ill patients report having had an NDE. And between 10 and 20% of people who aren't critical but are otherwise close to death have reported having them. So it is a, it's a pretty common phenomenon that people report this. And details and descriptions vary, but the overall tenor of the experience is very similar. Many of them report a sensation of floating up and viewing the scene around their body, spending time in a beautiful otherworldly realm, meeting spiritual beings and a loving presence that many perceive as God. Oftentimes they encounter long lost relatives or friends. Sometimes they recall scenes from their life or they feel a sense of connectedness to the rest of creation, a sense of overwhelming and transcendent love and then finally reluctantly being called back to their bodies. And they often say that it didn't feel like a hallucination or a dream, but was in fact more real than real life. And often they're profoundly changed after these experience and, and some experiences, and sometimes they have trouble fitting back into ordinary life. And this has happened so often to so many people, even the materialist writer for the Atlantic just could not ignore it. Um, and so people who have gone through this are sometimes called experiencers or NDEers. They've written hundreds of books, a few of which I put up on the slide. And many of those have become runaway bestsellers. They've been made into successful movies. They even have their own peer-reviewed scientific journal called the Journal of Near-Death Studies. And they meet regularly at conferences to share their experiences and their stories. And there have been so many interesting stories, and I'll confess I'm a little bit obsessed with this, so I'm not, I really had to rein myself in. But I'll just recount one, the lady up in the, the corner, the picture of the lady, that's Pam Reynolds. 
And she was a singer-songwriter who, in 1991, she had to undergo uh, surgery to remove a huge aneurysm at the base of her brain. And doctors were worried that the aneurysm might burst and kill her during the operation. So her surgeon opted to use this procedure called hypothermic cardiac arrest, where they chilled her body to 60 degrees, they stopped her heart, and they drained the blood from her head. And the cooling would prevent her cells from dying while they were deprived of oxygen. And to make absolutely certain that her brain was completely inactive during the operation, they put tiny speakers into her ears that played uh, rapid clicks at 100 decibels, which is about the same as a jackhammer. And so if any part of her brain was working, that clicking, uh, there'd be a monitor and they'd be able to see the brain signal. And the surgeons monitored that throughout. And the machine confirmed that for a number of minutes, Reynolds was effectively dead in both body. But after the surgery, she reported having had a powerful NDE, including an out-of-body experience and other things. And she accurately recalled several details about what was going on in the operating room, including the shape of the bone saw that they used, snatches of conversation between the medical staff. And she even recalled the staff listening to music. And one of the songs they listened to, which she accurately reported, was the song Hotel California because she remembered thinking that was really inappropriate, that you, know, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Um, and there's still a lot of debate about her case. The year after she, she died, um, the, the Journal of Near-Death Studies actually devoted an entire issue to her case where skeptics and believers debated. And I was actually looking just the other day on the internet and I stumbled across a blog where there were people in, in like modern current times still debating her case and whether it was legitimate. Now, there are a lot of ongoing studies to try to show whether or not these experiences generally are real and a lot of the literature attempts to explain them as the re result of physical changes in a dying brain. Uh, there was a, a rat study at the University of Michigan in 2013 that looked at the effect of oxygen deprivation on the brain, especially on a dying brain. And what they found was a huge spike in brain activity right before uh, death. And so NDEers, obviously people who had these experiences, dismissed these explanations as being inadequate. Uh, but a lot of scientists and, and many, many non-scientists claim that if they can show these experiences come from a physical reason like lack of oxygen, then they've proven there's nothing supernatural. And I would argue uh, I think that's a misunderstanding about the relationship between nature and the supernatural. And this is my obligatory Lord of the Rings reference. So I'm trying, trying to hit all the points. Um, if, you, if you've seen the movies or read the books, you know that there are a lot of battle scenes. And in the battle scenes, they use machines of war like catapults. But you also see magic being used in battles, like Gandalf will use his staff to blind the other side. and. If I was to go to the Lord of the Rings world and ask how the catapult worked, people would probably explain it to me in physical terms, the, the force and the momentum and the Newtonian physics. If I was to ask how Gandalf's staff worked, I mean, Gandalf would just kind of look at me and go, well, it's magic. Like, that's how it works. Um, and if I, if I asked for a further explanation, he probably wouldn't be able to give it. And I guess I would argue, in order not to be accused of heresy, I don't think Tolkien was so much guilty of this, maybe Hollywood is more guilty of it, that they've made us think that these two are completely separate and never meet. Um, but what if 
they're not all that different. What if the physical effects of a dying brain, like oxygen deprivation, are part of the supernatural experience of going to heaven? Just like if we had the language and we had the, the, the science, maybe Gandalf could actually explain how his staff worked in a logical way, like they explained the catapult. Um, the idea that if we know the physical cause, that that disproves the spiritual dimension, I, I, I don't think that's a valid position. I think that requires a leap of faith. Um, but before I leave near-death experiences, the thing I'll say is, as you look at that slide and see all the books and all the stories that are represented there, um, the one on the bottom, Proof of Heaven, was by a neurosurgeon who had one of these experiences and evaluated his own medical records to show that he really was brain dead. All these experiences, doctors, scientists, laymen, all throughout history, different times and different cultures, this is the thing to me that's so powerful about this. If even one of them was veridical, in other words, if even one of these people really experienced what they believe they experienced, then materialism can't be true. There's something out there. And I'll just say when my faith batteries get really low, that's really an encouragement to me. Um, so I, I, I think these are relevant to this. I want to leave the, the more dramatic now and talk about the more mundane. If you could go to the next slide, please. Um, so there are a lot of other types of religious experiences than these dramatic, like experiencing God on the mountaintop or dying and coming back to life. Um, things like, uh, you know, sometimes you read scripture in your devotional time and it just seems like God is really speaking to you, especially powerfully through that experience. Or sometimes when you pray, you feel more than others, this real closeness to God. Um, uh, sometimes you're in nature and you feel that. For most of us, religious experiences are more mundane, but they're no less important. And that was part of the point, I think, of uh, William James' book. Um, and part of what I want to do here, um, I want to recount an experience that I actually had about 25 years ago that was much less dramatic, uh, but it was life-changing. It's the thing that really brought me to Christianity. And I've struggled with whether to go into this today, and I, I talked to Paul about it at length, and um, it's one reason I'm so interested in this issue, but it's, it's hard to talk about something so personal, and I'm also worried that I'll come off as crazy, or that I'm trying to put myself in the same class as Moses, and I'm, I'm definitely not, but I'll, I'll relate the story anyway. So I have to put this in context a little bit. I was not raised as a Christian. My family didn't go to church, we didn't pray, we didn't read the Bible. Um, and we weren't diehard atheists either. We just kind of didn't care. We were just ambivalent. Um, I almost never thought about God or the Bible or any of those things. Um, I just didn't feel like I needed it. I didn't feel like it was relevant. I, I grew up, I went to college, I went to law school. I started working as a lawyer in Washington, D.C. And that's where this happened. So um, I'll just say Jesus really does go everywhere. Um, he even made it to D.C. Um, and I, I was working in this environment, I was surrounded by really intelligent people in a super competitive, super stressful environment. Most of them were non-Christians, and many of them weren't very nice. Um, and I was becoming not such a very nice person myself. There was, just, there was a lot of stress, there was also a lot of arrogance and insecurity and anger, um, some heavy drinking. 
and I got obsessed with work, and I had some success, and that just fed this idea that I really didn't need God or anything else, that I could do this all on my own. And there were two events that kind of changed everything. They happened exactly a week apart, and these two events turned me around. They weren't dramatic. There was no burning bush. There was no plane crash or car wreck. Um, so the first event happened. Um, I became furious with a couple of people in one evening over something pretty trivial. And one of them, I even threatened violence. And in my heart, I was really hoping it came to that because I just had so much anger. Um, and then the very, a week, exactly one week later, a person became really angry with me for no reason in a, in a kind of road rage incident, threatened violence for no reason. And it was unnerving and nothing happened. Uh, he walked away, but after that I went home and I was kind of tired and I laid down and I remember thinking um, it just hit me that the two events were almost exactly alike, that the week before I had threatened someone for no good reason and got furious with someone else for no good reason. And then the, the next week, the same thing happened to me. And I realized I got what I deserved. And this is the part where it uh, maybe gets a little, I'm, I'm worried about going into crazy Christian land, but I felt a presence with me in that room. I didn't see or hear anyone but you know when you have the feeling that someone's close to you even though you can't see or touch them or you know you're being watched even if you can't see or, or hear the person, it was kind of like that, but it wasn't like this entity appeared. It was like they'd always been there and I just now could perceive them. And all I'll say about the experience, um, it, it, I felt dirty and small in that situation. Um, it's like when you're someone who's devoted their life to charitable work and giving to charity and you just spend a bunch of money on some really frivolous purchase. Um, when you, you have that feeling of, you know, you're in the presence of someone who's done a lot better job than you, but it was, it was more than that. Um, this, this person, this entity that, that I was in the presence of seemed greater and better to me in every possible way. Um, and while I was lying there, I saw the kind of person I had become and where my heart was at. And, I, and it was just, it was an amazing because I wasn't who I thought I was. I had a picture of the kind of person I thought I was. And in that moment, I was shown that I wasn't that kind of person at all. Um, and I really hated myself for the first time in my life. And I remember thinking that if heaven is real and it's full of people like me, I really don't want to go there. You know, the old Groucho Marx line, I don't want to be a member of any club that would have me as a member. Um, and even though I just hated myself and I wondered how I'd ever change, I also had the overwhelming feeling that everything would be okay. Um, this presence was showing me the truth, but I never felt hatred or being berated. I, I, I felt this overwhelming sense of being loved and that eventually it was going to be hard, but everything was going to be okay. Um, and I got it in my head that night that the answer was to turn to Christ, that I should try to turn my life towards God, that I should start reading the Bible, that I should start trying to pray, that I should start going to church. And I don't have an explanation for that because again, there were no Christian influences really in my life for the most part. I wasn't raised that way. I could have interpreted this experience in lots of different ways, but that is how uh, it came to me. And after that, certainly not immediately, but after that, everything started to change over the next four to five years. Some of the really bad stuff, the, the bad anger, um, the heavy drinking, that went away. 
There's other stuff that was more deeply ingrained, things like gossiping and cursing that I'm still working on. And I mean, I still say and do awful things, but I really changed in that period of time. If you had known me back then, you would have said, there is no way on earth this guy will ever become a high school Bible teacher. Um, and actually, a quick story, a friend of mine uh, that was somebody I, this happened after I was converted, but before I'd really changed a whole lot. I was at a work function where we had to give a fun fact. And my fun fact was that I sang bass in the church choir. And one of my best friends who worked there, his remark was, it's not surprising that Mueller sings bass, but it's shocking that he goes to church. Um, that was just the kind of person I was. But after this, I really started to approach everything differently. And people always ask me, what was your wife doing in all this? So I'll, I want to say a little bit about the most patient woman in North America. Um, I met her when I was in college, and we got married between college and law school. We've been married now 33 years. And she's really one of the best people I know. She was, and she always has been a good influence. And she was raised as a Christian, but she lost her mom to cancer right before we got married. So she was kind of at a weak point in her faith when we got married, and I pulled her further away. I'm happy to say that she later came back to her faith, and now we kind of help each other out. Um, so, okay, so application, what does this mean for us? Where am I going with all this? Um, and going back to the passage with Moses experiencing God on Mount Sinai, I think the key idea in that passage is that Moses wanted to see the bush that burned. No matter which translation you read, it emphasizes that, that God didn't just appear to Moses out of nowhere, but Moses saw the burning bush and turned away from his sheep to look at it. And it says explicitly, that God appeared to him because he turned aside to see. And so in order to be Wheatland approved, I also feel like last point, I have to quote St. Eugene. Um, and the message translation is really good on this. It has one sentence in this passage that just says, he looked. And it really stresses the importance of Moses turning to look. And so one of the things that many people have noted is that a person is probably more likely to have an experience of God if they're open to it or curious, if like Moses, they leave what they're doing to go look. And I admit that it's hard to be open to the idea of people actually having honest to goodness religious experiences. And to go back to where I started with, with the Malarkey book, if we're honest, we're more likely to be embarrassed by these stories. And, and sometimes it almost seems like a weakness of Christianity that, that we have them. But I think the fact that we aren't materialists is a real strength. Um, and this point was argued brilliantly by the Catholic writer and theologian G.K. Chesterton. If you could go to the next slide, please. Um, and I want to try to start today a Wheatland tradition of quoting Chesterton, because I think this should be a thing. Um, in his book, Orthodoxy, he argues that materialism, or believing that there is nothing supernatural, is actually kind of like insanity. And if you think about it, if you've ever tried to logically convince an insane person that they're insane, it's really difficult. The belief system may be delusional, but it's often internally consistent and possible. So if I believe that everybody's a government agent who's part of a secret plot to get me, I can see everything that happens in that light. And if you try to tell me that that's crazy, my response will be, well, that's just what people would say if they were part of a secret plot against me. It's very hard to argue against. So the beliefs of madmen often involve a world that's very small and, and very simple. And Chesterton argues that's just what materialism offers, a simple, 
easily defendable world. And so I want to close with two quotes from Chesterton uh, from his book Orthodoxy, um, comparing materialism to insanity. Um, Take first the more obvious case of materialism. As an explanation of the world, materialism has a sort of insane simplicity. It has just the quality of the madman's argument. We have at once the sense of it covering everything and the sense of it leaving everything out. Contemplate some able and sincere materialist, as for instance, Mr. McCabe, and you will have exactly this unique sensation. And McCabe was a Catholic priest who had become a materialist and wrote and, and talked strongly against Christianity. Mr. McCabe understands everything and everything does not seem worth understanding. His cosmos may be complex and every complete in every rivet and cogwheel, but still his cosmos is smaller than our world. Somehow his scheme, like the lucid scheme of the madman, seems unconscious of the alien energies and the large indifference of the earth. It is not thinking of the real things of the earth, of fighting peoples or proud mothers or first love or fear upon the sea. The earth is so very large and the cosmos is so very small. The cosmos is about the smallest hole that a man can hide his head in. And then he continues. Um, now, for instance, hold on, I'm sorry. Um, sorry, he continues. There is a very special sense in which materialism has more restrictions than spiritualism. Mr. McCabe thinks me a slave because I'm not allowed to believe in materialism. I think Mr. McCabe a slave because he is not allowed to believe in fairies. But if we examine the two vetoes, we shall see that this is really much more of a pure veto than mine. The Christian is quite free to believe that there is a considerable amount of settled order and inevitable development in the universe. But the materialist is not, not allowed to admit into his spotless machine the slightest speck of spiritualism or miracle. Poor Mr. McCabe is not allowed to retain even the tiniest imp, even though it might be hiding in a pimpernel. The Christian admits that the universe is manifold and even miscellaneous, just as a sane man knows that he is complex. The sane man knows that he has a touch of the beast, a touch of the devil, a touch of the saint, a touch of the citizen. Nay, the really sane man knows that he has a touch of the madman. But the materialist world is quite simple and solid. Just as the madman is quite sure he is sane, the materialist is sure that history has been simply and solely a chain of causation, just as the madman before mentioned is quite sure that he is simply and solidly a chicken. Materialists and madmen never have doubts. Um, God, I just pray that you'd let us be open to your work in the world, whether in the mundane or the dramatic. I pray that we wouldn't be gullible, but I pray that we would be always ready to go look for you. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. That was really, really.